welcome to Defiance. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I have an interview with former Detective Chief Superintendent for Strathclyde Police, John Carnockham, to discuss how his innovative programme helped reduce violent crime in Scotland. Now, this interview follows on from my previous interview with Rudy Crawford, a former surgeon who witnessed firsthand the impact of violent knife crime. Now, in the late 90s and early 2000s, Scotland had become the murder capital of Europe. So to combat this epidemic, John approached the subject as a matter of public health, creating the Violence Reduction Unit. Instead of taking a heavy-handed and aggressive approach to gang violence, the VRU worked with gang members, communicated and offered education, health services, career advice and social services to those who were most vulnerable. And this led to a dramatic drop in knife crime. But before we get into that interview, I do also just need to thank my sponsor, Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. Are you a Bitcoiner? If not, and you would like to learn more about Bitcoin, then please check out my other show, What Bitcoin Did, which Kraken also sponsors. And I also have a beginner's guide on there, which can help you understand everything related to Bitcoin if you're new to it. Bitcoin is a decentralized peer-to-peer digital currency without any central authority. By not having a controlling party required to validate transactions, Bitcoin is both trustless and permissionless. It is also an opt-out of government fuckery. And as Edward Snowden said, Bitcoin is freedom. If you want to find out more, head over to kraken.com. Also, if you enjoy Defiance and want to support the show, please do leave me a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media and share this out with your friends and family. If you do have any questions about this or any of my other shows, please do feel free to email me. My email address is peter at defiance.news. The reason why we fight is to draw attention to issues and to fix it. Resilient. Resolute. Defiant in the face of impossible odds. We are in the beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money. Hundreds of protesters turned out singing Glory to Hong Kong, an anthem of defiance. Hi there, John. Sorry to interrupt your retirement. That's okay. Um, great to meet you. So, just to give you a bit of a background, um, I'm a podcaster, obviously, and I've been doing lots of different work and recently I've decided to focus a bit more on the UK and I've taken an interest in knife crime and gangs. Really what kicked it off for me is my son listening to drill music and hearing the lyrics and just trying to explain to him that there's something behind this that Mm -hmm. he needs to be aware of and I've kind of gone down the rabbit hole. Yesterday I interviewed someone called Sheldon Thomas who's an ex-gang member. Tomorrow I'm interviewing Rudy Crawford. Yeah, Yeah, the surgeon because I want Mm -hmm. to understand a bit more. But I was really desperate to talk to you because you kept coming up in some of the documentaries I was watching and I kind of really appreciated your both pragmatic approach. It felt like you were both firm but pragmatic and rather than having kind of archaic blame, you know, blame the perpetrators and, you know, have real kind of strict discipline, you wanted to understand the problems mm-hmm. behind crime and life crime and just to add into that, when I was watching the documentary, what really sparked my interest in Scotland is that the documentary I watched at the time said that Scotland was the murder capital of Europe at the time and had five times the murder rate of London. That really kind of shocked me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I've got a lot to ask you. <laughs> and I guess the main goal from this is wanting to find out a bit more about the successes you had. But also, I read your recent interview where you said... Scotland isn't a success story yet, so I want to get some idea about the future. So, ready for this? Okay, yeah, absolutely. Right, okay. 
Can I just start with uh, something you said, though, first? Because this really stood out to me. This really stood out to me. Because I'm uh, looking at L- London and the rest of the UK and thinking, why is nobody doing anything? And I read a statement from you, and tell me if this is correct. The most corrosive gangs I've encountered are the gangs in politics, health, yes. police, and social work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, they are. They act like gangs. We, we, you know, we speak about gangs and everyone says, oh, we know what we mean by a gang. We mean... Now, the truth of the matter is, you need to understand... And, and we seem to either willfully or, or through ignorance ignore it. We're all humans. That's the first thing that we forget. And, and um, humans are connected. We're born connected and we stay connected. And most humans get themselves into trouble when they're disconnected. There'll be something around that been disconnected from people around them. You know, the, the old saying, there's nothing worse in the world than to be nothing to nobody. And I remember quite recently reading something about a young boy who was 16 who had been stabbed and killed in London and um, social work services had arranged his funeral because no one was there to arrange his funeral. So, um, so yeah, so I, I, I had said uh, um, people gather together in gangs. That's what we do. That's We're programmed to do that. That's why we're top of the food chain. And whether that gang happens to be the army gang or whether it happens to be, the, and, and these are... But the gangs that are social work and health and and they they exact they, they act in exactly the same way. They, they they are they are collaborative towards each other, supportive of each other. They have a language. They're highly territorial. They usually have an idea about themselves being better than any other gang, and it makes it very difficult to penetrate them. And it's exactly the same with young guys. But the young guys in the street are easier because you can. You can connect them. When we, when we started doing our gangs work in Glasgow, which we had copied from, because there's no such thing as original thought, when we copied it from um, America. Was that Boston? It, no, it actually came from Cincinnati. Oh, okay. Focused deterrence, it was called. David Kennedy was the professor at John Jay University, still is, who, who had this idea of focused deterrence. So there was the moral voice of the community. There was the enforcement and there was the something else. So it was that we can do something else about this. And when he came over, he said, right, one of your measures needs to be how many gangs you, you break up. And I said, mm, that's not going to be a measure. I said, I don't mind these fellas being in gangs. It's what the gangs do that are the issue for me. I said, so if the gangs are playing football or rugby, that's fine. If they're playing chess, if they're crocheting, I really don't care. It's when they're out on a Friday night stabbing each other, that becomes an issue for me. Okay. I said, so it's what they're doing that's the issue. And so the idea of the gang, and so when that when I said that at first, I would have oh, really, you can't say that. I mean, I, somebody said to me once who was editing the book that I wrote, they said, well, you don't think you can say that? I said, well, I think you'll find I've already said it in a yeah. public forum lots of times. And, and I've had people from these gangs say, you're absolutely right. Sometimes you have to make people feel uncomfortable. You do. I mean, it's that idea of, um, I think we used to call it the critical friend speaking the uncomfortable truth. Mm-hmm. And it's there. And it, it doesn't mean to say that I don't think social work do a great job or that doctors don't do a great job or health. They do. But there are times when it can be. I mean, if, if you think about the information sharing, for instance, you know, we, we, I was somebody today was talking about we need new ICT to share information. The information, the, the, the thing that prevents the sharing information is never ICT, it's people. You know, there's legislation that says you can share information to, to protect life. You can share information to help detect or prevent crime. Of course you can do that data. Well, why don't we? We don't because it's people that, that we forget. It's systems we try to put together and systems don't work. 
together, but people work better together. So when we started to work collaboratively, we didn't work with health, we worked with Rudy Crawford. Uh-huh. You know, we didn't work with education, we worked with John Butcher, we didn't work with uh, social work, we worked with Anne-Marie Rafferty, we worked with House, we worked with individuals within these organisations and that's who, we shared, that's who we shared our ideas and our information with. You know, we didn't share them, I'm giving health this information, saying, no, I'm telling Rudy about this. Well, let's go back a, let's go back a step. So I, I haven't actually read your book. I only actually discovered the book existed on the train journey on the way up. So I found some excerpts, and I also looked at some of the statistics, which are very impressive. I mean, the murder rate in 2004, 2005 dropped from 142 down to 61 people. Uh, but the attempted murder rate also dropped from mm-hmm. 828 to 317, and serious assaults pretty much halved. Mm-hmm. But can you take me back to the point where you were... You were deputy head of CID mm-hmm. in 2002, and as I believe it, it was really Willie Ray who implored, I read that he implored you to do yes. something yeah. about this murder rate. Yeah. So can you talk to me about the kind of birth of this whole mm-hmm. change? Yeah, and yeah, it's one of those things that's, that's um, sometimes lost in the, in the midst of time because well, I think one of the most... When I tell people the most interesting things about it is it wasn't a strategy. We didn't start off with a strategy. Uh-huh. We didn't start off with a plan. We didn't start off with a destination. But we started off from a place we didn't want to be, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. We didn't know where we wanted to go, but we certainly knew we weren't comfortable where we were. Willie Ray was the chief constable. Very, very thoughtful guy. A, a very quiet an astounding leader. Uh, um, you know, if, if the definition of a leader is to create more leaders... He was the best leader I ever worked with. Mm-hmm. And as deputy head of the CID, one of the things that w- we were trying to develop was a homicide reduction strategy because at that time uh, um, we had huge numbers of homicides. Three and a half times the number of murders committed by a knife than anywhere else in Europe. Knife was a big issue. Gangs were a big issue. Detecting these young guys and arresting them wasn't a problem. I mean, it, it wasn't. We were very good at that. We had a great detection rate. But in trying to develop that homicide reduction strategy. The normal thing is you would start looking at what other forces have done and then you just change the title. You know, that's what we do. I mean, you know, in Scotland, we put a kilt on it and and, and then we call it Scottish. Um, And that's normally what happens. But but we were lucky lucky in Strathclyde. We had just started to set up our intelligence uh, analyst and uh, analytical network. So we'd employed lots of analysts. And the principal analyst was Karen McCluskey. Now, Karen, had been, Karen was a, a, a forensic psychologist. She was an intelligence analyst. She, she's got a brain the size of Belgium, you know, and, and um, Karen worked along the corridor from me. She'd worked in several police forces. So at one of the meetings, I was talking about this homicide reduction strategy. She says, you know, she said, I've been doing some work on the violence in Scotland. I'll let you see it. And she'd had an analyst start to demonstrate their worth by saying, well, look at the, look at the violence stuff. So she came in with this report. And it was shocking, shocking. And at that time I had 29, 30 years service and never, it's so busy working, never stepped back to actually think about it in any context at all. Anyway, uh, um, Karen and I then got our heads together and and, and we were kindred spirits immediately, you know. Uh, um, And we said to Willie Ray, right, the first thing is, we can't have a homicide reduction strategy. Most of our homicides are a happenstance. The outcome of a, is a happenstance. The violence is deliberate, 
but the outcomes are happenstance. So just to look at that okay. is, is silly. We need to look at, right across the board, violence. Reduce violence and you will reduce murders. Yes, absolutely. And and, and it's, it seems obvious now, but, mm-hmm. but, but the idea of now... Now when I look back in it, single issues are paper tigers. You know, the idea that, you know, knife crime, let's tackle knife crime on its own. It's absurd. You can't. Of course. You just can't. Uh, uh, you can do certain things specific to it, but so. Well, because you come, you come at it with maybe some some concepts or ideas that aren't workable. So, like, you know, I've been researching the UK knife crime and, you know, I saw a company who had released a new knife which has a blunt end. Yes. And I thought, what a great idea. It's not going to make any difference. Mm-hmm. It is, and it is a great idea. Of course it is, because it's not penetrating, it's there, and it's fine. But, you know, 10 feet from where I'm sitting, there are 35 knives. Exactly. All of which will, will, will kill you stone dead, you know. So it, it's about who's in the end of it, you know, it's that idea. So we said that to Willie Ray, and he said, right, carry on, do what you need to. So we sat down and said, right, we pulled together a report that said we have to look at violence. It's not a policing issue. This is an issue for everyone, and we need to get together with that. We, there are some key players in this we need to be involved in. So we put this report on it, Willie Ray, and basically when we spoke to him, you know, he said, right, what do we do now? And, and, and we had said something, although Karen and I were, were not quite agreed in this, but I think it was, it was worse to the effect we had said to him, you need to find three or four really smart people and lock them in a room and don't let them out until they've, they've got a real plan for you. And he said, okay, you, you two find another two people and I'll find you the room. He said, because I want you to do this. Just go away and do it. So we, that's how we started. So uh, Karen brought in another analyst. I brought in a young detective sergeant that had worked with, for me in policy whose, whose hobby was collecting university degrees. He had about four, I think. He was just one of these really bright guys. And, and, and the reason I liked him is he was challenging. He, you know, even although I was three or four ranks above him, he'd be challenging you. He'd go, no, that's not right, boss. You're wrong there, you know? And, and so you needed somebody like that. Really. Yeah. So we did that, and we and we just started with the head and said, we need police. We need education, because the young guys who are, that we're locking up or go to school, or they've just left school, so we need education. We need housing, because they live in these areas. Um, we need to understand better what this is about. And when we started just... And, and Wally Ray never said, do this by X amount, do this by that date, do this by that date. He never said that. So one of the things that we, we discovered quite quickly, and it was, it was Alan Woods, who was the young detective sergeant, he said, do you know that World Health Organization stated this was a, that, that violence was a public health issue? I said, no. He said, yeah, that it is there. 1990-something, he said it was there, that it, is, it was a public health issue, and there's a, there's a violence prevention alliance and there's a, a there's a someone who's head of a department of non-communicable diseases, and I said, right, get in touch with them. We need to speak to them. So we were the only police that had ever got in touch with them. So we became the only police members of that. So we looked at the public health model that said, you need to, first of all, define what it is and understand what it is. Once you've done that, you need to understand what the causes are, and if you did that, then you could start to understand how you might reduce the risk or increase the at the protection, you need to do some testing, do things that are different, measure to see if they work, and if they work, scale it up. And that's the public health thing. So I said, right, okay, let's start to think about this. And that's all we did. We decided very early that, you know, you can do the things that are closest to you and you've got control over. So we were police. So we could do certain things in policing terms. So one of the things that we did is we 
process mapped, one of the really sexy things, we process mapped people who are stopped with a knife to see what happened to them and how long it took. So at this time, and, and it was the same across the UK, and it probably still is in lots of places, the notion of high visibility policing is very important. It's almost an ethos. It's a paradigm of policing. You want high-vis jackets on the street so the public can see them and feel reassured. So that was what we were doing. So what happened in 2004, if you were stopped with a knife in city, the city centre and we knew who you were, you weren't wanted and warrant, we were satisfied with your address and we didn't think you were going to commit a crime uh, if we let you go, we would caution and charge you at the locus and allow you to go. And we'd take the knife up to the office and put it in and leave it there and we'd back out in the street within 10 minutes. You see, the alternative for that is if you arrested someone and took them in, you would be in the office for an hour and a bit, you wouldn't be on the street, you wouldn't be high visibility and it wouldn't be a good thing. So we started then to track what happened with that because when someone's arrested, there's a form gets filled in and that form will go with them through the court to the prison till they come back out and it tracks exactly everything, the dates, who was involved in and what we found was, if you were stopped with a knife in 2004, it was an average 14 months before you went to court. And in the interim, you collected other cases. So the drama became a crisis. You went from one case that we could have dealt with quickly, justice has to be swift, justice denied, is, you know, justice delayed is justice denied, all of that stuff. Well, we didn't do that because we were doing things because we wanted police officers on the street. So the first thing that we did is we changed that. We said if you're caught with a knife, you will be arrested, you will be taken to a police office and you will be fingerprinted, photographed and you will be kept, your DNA will be taken and you will be kept in custody until the first lawful day at court. And when you go to court, we will oppose bail. And so what we were saying was, we're taking this seriously you better start behaving because whilst we had all these knife murders, there was nothing that said we took them seriously except that we investigated them and detected the people who did them. We weren't serious about stopping them. How did you communicate this to people who might be carrying knives in advance? Media. Okay. Because one of the other things that we did is we, we, we brought in, we invited in every editor of the newspaper, uh, uh, all the media con and, and I had been a police officer and a detective for nearly 30 years at that time I knew lots of you know crime reporters all over the place so we started to invite people in one at a time and we would say to them look we know we've got problems we're not looking for cheerleaders but we're trying to do things differently and this is the sort of stuff we're trying to do we're trying to prevent it because we believe that all violence is important, from bullying through to suicide. Suicide is self-directed violence, and it's huge. I mean, and, and when I say Scotland hasn't solved it, there's one of the indicators where it hasn't solved it. We're still an angry, an angry team, an angry nation. And so we, we had that, that changed. Um, we went to the courts, first of all, and spoke to the Procurator Fiscals and said, look, you can no longer drop knife crime off when you're negotiating, please. Knife crime's the one that stays on. You can't take the knife off. So they did that. We spoke to sheriffs and sheriffs said, yeah, we're with you. And it was really strange because everyone thought, oh, no, people won't. Everybody realised that the, the fiscals who are marking the same cases every week, oh, there's, there's John Carlton back, came in another knife, you know. He's going to kill somebody someday, that boy. And everybody knew that. Teachers knew that boy's going to get into trouble and do something really bad one day. But nobody, if 
fucked it in about it. So this was an attempt to try and do something about it. Were there any early guinea pigs who got arrested, ended up being stuck in jail, which actually relayed the message to other people that may be living on the estates? Or I, I don't know for certain. Okay. But, but we, we certainly spoke to everybody. We spoke to housing officers and community cops. We spoke to everybody. This is the message, you know, change is coming. You know, we've, we've had enough of this. And that's what we said in, in the press. We've had enough of this. We need to do, and, and we're going to do it. This is, not a, this is our blitz on people, who, but it was about saying this is going to be different. And one of the things that happened, because we, we had lots of cops who were, oh, I know John, but he's obviously lost the plot if he's talking like that. What's he talking about? He needs to get back to his work. You know, there was that notion. We didn't have, you know... Because uh, it was new. It was new. And, and we used to, I used to say we've got people in three categories. We've got some people who see the light, some who are startled by the light, and some who are still in the dark. And our job was to try and, and, and do that. And what we had was we had Karen, who, who was a f- fabulous analyst and, 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 and really smart and a big thinker, understood the strategy, how we could do things. And, and alongside her, I could, you know, I was a guy who said, well, look, I've got 29 years police service. I've been a detective for a long time. I've locked up people who are in Berlin area because of me. I'm telling you, it's not working. We need to do it. So there was some uh, credibility, you know, that, that people would listen, at least at the start. I mean, they maybe have lost a bit of faith as time went on. Could you measure the change in stop and search? Yeah, because we actually asked for an increase in stop and search. Okay. Because stop and search does work. Mm-hmm. I, I know there are challenges just now in, in, in London uh, to stop and search. And, and, and well, it's mainly based around race. And that's that's the issue. The the issue, I think, in London, and this is as an outside observer, I would never for a moment uh, um, dream to tell the commissioner what to do. But what the police need to do in London is re-establish a relationship with those young men who are most at risk of dying from knife crime, and they don't have a relationship. Well, so this having a relationship directly with people who are in gangs is quite an interesting one. I've just been out to El Salvador, and I'm only relaying something that was told to me by a local, but the new president has had a uh, quite a significant impact on reducing gang violence and gang crime. And one of the ways he did that is he went to the gangs and said, the first thing you need to do is stop killing each other. Yeah. You need to stop killing each other, and if we catch you, I'm going to put you in jail, it's going to be 60 years, and we're going to remove your ability to have a mobile phone to communicate with the outside world. Mm-hmm. And there's been a significant drop in the murder rate in El Salvador. Yeah, yeah. And that, that, that concept of talking directly to criminals and gangsters and coming to some kind of compromise around certain areas seems alien to some people, like the concept of compromise on drugs. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you maybe need more radical ideas. Yeah. You need to meet people where they are if you want to convince uh-huh. them. You need to meet them where they are. You can't, you can't do things to people. You need to do things with them. Uh, and that makes a difference. But w- w- one of the things that, that was a sort of, not a tipping point, but a key moment, there was, there was a murder of a, of a young Asian woman, a brutal murder. It was a horrible murder. All murders brutal. But th- uh-huh. anyway, this was, and it was on a canal bank. And they had no witnesses. And, but they found DNA that matched it. And the person's DNA, the DNA had been taken because he was carrying a knife. He had a couple of previous convictions, but not for violence. The knife carrying was, was a pending case. So they had to, they had to go other ways in, in order to, to get that. And what had happened was, this was a, a man who was worked constant night shifts and he fell asleep on the bus coming home and he got off at the wrong stop 
like three or four stops from where he should be. And he decided to walk back the canal. He walked back the canal and he met this young woman who was out jogging in the morning and he murdered her. And then he walked home. And so when we, when I spoke to the SIO for that murder, and I said, tell me, in terms of your, your parameters, how, how quickly would you have got to him? And he said, I'm not sure we ever would have got to him. So it was kind of fortuitous. It was really fortuitous. What a senseless crime, though. I mean, oh, yeah, absolutely. Did you find out why? Was no, it, was no. it a robbery? He or? was quite young. Uh, um, there, there was some discussion that it could have been one in a series. It was the first in a series. Oh, it was, and when they checked back, there was a few uh, um, incidents around where he lived of indecent expo- exposure, uh-huh. a few incidents of women saying there was a man that had followed me down here, and, and they sort of fitted the description, none of which were ever brought, but the DNA okay, yeah, was the yeah. one for that. So we were then able to say to the two cops... You took that guy in, you did what you were asked to do, and as a result of that, we've arrested this man and nobody else is going to be killed by him, and he's there. And we've given some sense of justice to the family that were there because that's that's the role of the SIO. We, we've done that. And all of a sudden we thought, well, okay, there's something worthwhile in this other than, 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 than doing that. If you needed a reason, there's a reason, there's another reason for doing it. But a lot of the work seems to be about really understanding people and and, yeah. and having to hold a certain amount of empathy. So one thing that stood out through all of it, through everything I read, and is this kind of empathy for children and the adverse conditions they may be raised in, mm-hmm. you know, abusive homes, alcoholic mm-hmm. homes, drug addicted homes, maybe lack of a parent or lack of both parents. And there is a certain correlation between that and involvement in gangs yep. and violence. And it also makes me want to ask you another question because you t- there was one thing we talked about a lot, young 15-year-old lad. David. His name was David, yeah. David story, yeah. Yeah, and he was it, like a, an alcoholic mother and, you know, an abusive yeah. home, yeah. terrible situation. And he ended up murdering, murdering someone. And, you know, there are, you know, of course he's going to be punished by this. Mm-hmm. But is there any part of you that just sees the pattern and has a certain amount of sympathy for somebody who finds themselves in that situation? Or, or do you do you still have no sympathy, whatever their upbringing, whatever the conditions they've come through? No, I, I, I think it, it basically say that on and, and one level, the, the, main, the main reason is to understand why that happened. Mm-hmm. And if we understand it better, then perhaps we can prevent others from doing it. Um, that's the main reason. I do have sympathy for... For children who are brought up, you know, who have no control over where they're born, no control over what happens to them, traumatised throughout their childhood, and then they respond as traumatised adults, and and we shouldn't be surprised at that. I mean, there's no, I mean, there's there should be no surprise of the the the, the, the demand on mental health services right now or, or police, that the percentage of calls that police attend that's to do with mental health issues. If I told you that, for instance, if you look at Children in care, when we speak about you know, adverse experiences and childhood experiences, the, the population of Scotland, 2% of the population of Scotland are care experienced. Almost 60% of the population in Berlini prison are care experienced. So, well, okay, what does that tell us? What, what's that saying is? Well, what it's saying is that the majority of children who go into care are there because of something that happened to them. So they suffer a trauma. And we begin to understand now a lot more about trauma and its impact on a life course and what can happen through It's difficult. We understand that, um, I mean, I started to, to, to make the link through the help of people like Suzanne Zedek, a, a developmental psychologist. And when we were talking about, I, I used to use the expression about 
we don't learn how to be violent. We learn how not to be violent. Okay, so that, that's okay. Uh, uh, Richard Tremblay, who's a professor at um, uh, Ottawa University, has done lots of work on that. But, but his conclusion is that, that single line, that we don't, we're not born violent, we learn, uh, sorry, we're not, we don't learn how to be violent, we learn how not to be violent. Because so it's an animal instinct? Every man in us has got that instinct for survival that would, that would take a life if we had to do it. I uh-huh. mean, the, you know, soldiers, look at the Second World War and the amount of killing them and on there. We, we have that capacity in the right circumstances to do that or in, in circumstances, whether they're right or not, that means to be seen, uh, um, to do that. So what happens then, the reason we all manage to live together is because we learn how to deal with things in a different way. We learn to communicate, to negotiate, to compromise. We learn other skills that allow us to negotiate life so that we don't respond with anger and violence to everything that happens to us. We can negotiate our way around that. But, but also, is love at home a part of that? Love and care and having that affection at home and that love means you have uh, love out for other people? Well, that, or does the la- and, and the lack of having that means you don't really understand about love and empathy for other it, people? It's modelled. It has to be modelled for you. It's yeah. there. When, when babies are born, mum gets a, a spike in oxytocin which is the cuddle hormone, the one that makes you feel good. Mm-hmm. That's biologically your body setting you up to love your baby. That's what they are. And that notion of attachment, when Bowlby talks about the attachment theory, about how babies get attached to, the, to their mums, babies are programmed to connect to other adults. That's what they're programmed to do. That's how they survive. Because human infants are completely helpless. They need to connect to others who look after them. They need to make sure they're securely attached to them so that they can do that and in tune with them. And, and that's, that's what interesting happens. because the um, narcissism is a lack of empathy and socio- sociopathy yes. is a lack of empathy. And that comes usually from a lack of bond between yes. mother and baby. Yeah, often. Wow. Okay. And so when in those early years, because when, when that happened, and, and this is part of the VRU story, Sir Willie Ray, to get back to Willie, he didn't leave us with it. He, he was aware of what we were doing and everywhere he went, he spoke to people and, and, and he, he would phone us up. I mean, I'd be coming home at night and I'd get the phone call from his PA at eight o'clock at night and, and, and it was before there was hands-free, you pulled over at the side of the road. John, I met so-and-so the other day and, he, you know, he's an economist. You need to speak to him. I've told him you'll be in touch. Now, I'll get a, a Elizabeth to send you. So, and one of the people I was put in touch with a guy called Alan Sinclair. Now, Alan's an economist and Alan had done some work looking at skills deficits, what was it that employers saw lacking in young people in particular that were bringing into their employee? Um, <clears throat> and it was so they could design better training and, and stuff. And, and the cohort was huge. It was like 180,000 or something. It was a huge cohort. And, and I would have thought, oh, it's reading and writing. It wasn't. Reading and writing wasn't the issue. Problem solving was the issue. Communication was the issue. Working with others was the issue. Interesting. Those are non-cognitive skills. When do you learn them? Early years. So not only are children who are born into difficult, traumatic households, not only are they not, not only are they being traumatised, but they are not learning these other human skills that allow them. So young men don't think I'm going to be angry and violent today. That's just how they are. And so it, if we get back to what we're talking about, knife crime, young men who carry knives and are violent with knives, they'll be, they'll be violent on their own. They'll be violent with or without knives. They'll be violent in pairs. They'll be violent towards each other. They'll be, they're just violent. 
mm-hmm. because they don't have any other mechanism to deal with it. And what we found, and there's other research around the world that lots of times, you know, they say, well, the reason that violence is between these drugs gangs is because they're protecting turf. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's because somebody insulted their mum. Sometimes it's because somebody said something bad about their, their girlfriend. And, and then that epidemic begins because there's a piece of violence, then there's tit for tat, and then there's tit for tat, and then there's tit. And all of a sudden, one incident over the next 12 months can cause 40, 50, 60. And that's the work that they do in Boston with the ceasefire project, the interrupters, where Gary Slutkin treats it exactly like that. That epidemic wave that occurs after there's a gang fight. There's an epidemic wave of violence after that all over the place. So it's huge. Yeah, the common, I mean, the common term here is violence, and it goes back to your point that your strategy did end up coming down to reducing violence yeah. because that, that would lead on to everything else. Just before we get into a bit more of the detail, so I've mainly been looking at London, and obviously now I've started looking at Scotland because of your work and you know, Rudy's work. And I understand some of the consistent problems with young people with opportunity, home problems, abuse, alcoholism, all the various things like that, but... What are the unique problems that Scotland has that maybe England doesn't? So I can just have some context around. There are some of the things in, uh, uh, that are an issue in Scotland. There was, um, we're net exporters of violence. Right. Scotland are, we, we are throughout history, we have been quick to take offence and we can be very violent. David Stirling, when he established the Special Air Service, said that the best, uh, best trooper would be a Scotsman. Um, because they, they, they're thrown, they don't give in, and you know, pretty violent. The Thin Red Line, Scottish Regiment. Mm-hmm. To lynch someone, lynch was a Scotsman who sorted out uh, troublesome slaves by, in front of other slaves, hanging them. Um, if you look at the, the southern states, you know, I, I think two of the key founders of the Ku Klux Klan were Scots. Some of the feuding that goes on that's been lasting for generations, they call them the, Mac- the Mackays, it's the Mackays, they're Scots. Jamaica, that's where most of the, the Jacobites went to after it. We are net exporters of violence. We are, and, and that's that's in our, our, our nature to be like that. Whether it's a Calvin thing, it's how we were brought up, I really don't know. I, 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 don't, <laughs> I don't know enough about it. But, but there is something around that. Alcohol, we have a very, very unhealthy association with alcohol. And whilst alcohol doesn't make you violent, it does, I mean, it's a depressant, it it does instigate and creates that opportunity for violence. So whilst we do have organised criminal groups that are involved in gangs and use violence in order to enforce what they do, they are are really entirely different. Their violence is predicated on a purpose, that this is, they're doing that for that. We actually started using the phrase recreational violence where it was used where this is just what we do, you know, and we use the excuse of territory, we use the excuse of a, a, a slight to do it, but it was just violence. But, I mean, the, the, there, there's more common than not. I mean, when, when we brought the gangs project over from Cincinnati, people said, well, that won't work here because that's, you know, that's, that, that's black African-American men who were, who were in uh, drug dealing on three strikes in the row. They were mostly in their mid-20s. And we were talking about young, white, indigenous Scots who were in their teens, some younger than that, some early teens and some, you know, early 20s. But the truth of the matter is, when we stripped it all back, the only difference, the only difference was colour. And often race has the impact on our response 
not on their violence. They're not violent because they're from Jamaica or violent because we're from here or violent because... But how we respond to them is sometimes we have to take account of the race and, and the nuances of that. So the drill music, for instance, that, that we, we spoke of earlier, the type of music that, that, that's involved in that, that culture... Uh, um, that's not a, a Scottish culture. That's a culture that's 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 unique to some young Black African Americans and and across perhaps in London as well. In Scotland, it was about drink, and it was about territorial, and that Scottish word thrown, which is you know yeah we, we, we you just never give up. You just never give up. So you know if if your father was feuding with my father, you and I'd be feuding. That's how it happens. Uh, how much pride was in the work as well, like? Obviously, you had the job to do as you're a police officer, but how much was there some pride amongst you of like, we're Scottish people and we have the highest murder rate in Europe. I don't want this for my country. Yeah, yeah. Did that Was that part driving you on as well? Yeah, well, I think one of the things that it, when we went along and said to people that, you know, look, we, we started to remember in Strathclyde, predominantly in Glasgow and, and Lanarkshire, when we said to people, listen, here are the figures. Would you like to make, would you like to make it less violent? Who's going to say no to that? Of course. So first of all, it's difficult to say, well, because if you don't identify it as being yours, like if, if you went down in some parts of London and said, would you like to see the violence? Yeah, because it's really important. Well, it doesn't really affect me because I live over here and drive my Ferrari and drive, you know, you know uh-huh. so, so it doesn't affect me the same. Where we were able to identify, like, this is everybody's issues. No one's safe until everyone's safe. That idea that it's everyone's, everyone's responsibility. And when we started then to try and garner a coalition of the willing, Rather than, rather than um, identify, we, we, we did, we, we, we identified a shared agenda. But rather, t- to describe it sometimes, we didn't describe a shared outcome. Because the shared outcome might be for health, um, fewer people turn up at A&E. For police, fewer calls and, and fewer victims. Uh, for social work, you know, fewer stress and fewer caseloads. For education, fewer kids being excluded. So those outcomes are all different. But if we brought it back to the source... The source of all these negative outcomes was the same thing, early years. It was, it was families and it was around that. And it was really tricky to speak about it. I mean, at the start, we get some, we, we get some really bad press from some, one or two. But what came out of that was people coming to our defence that we'd never met before. I mean, I had said about early years, hugely important. We need to, if we, don't, if we don't value children and support parents to be as good as they can be, then we're going to have this problem going forward and we need to think about that. And someone had, you know, a journalist doing what he was doing and, and, and he went along to get a negative comment about that, or a, an opposing opinion to that, and of course he did. And it was a psychologist who said something, you know, off the cuff and flippant, you know, and, and uh, which I now know because I've spoken to him, he regretted. Uh, so, so we want detectives in the delivery rooms, you know, and so on. I thought, who the hell said that? But anyway, this was in the paper. Uh-huh. And what happened, and as a response to that, several other psychologists got in touch. One in particular was Suzanne Zedek, who wrote to the paper, who wrote to her colleague, the other psychologist, and said, you are wrong, that police officer's right, you should be listening to him, and here's why. She was an early years developmental psychologist, an expert on attachment, and said, here are the issues. And of course, then it can... It, it started then, we, we, we started to have a different discussion because speaking in, we weren't speaking about crime, we, didn't, we, weren't, the violence, we weren't the violent crime reduction unit because if we put crime in, it's a policing issue. Yes. So we kept crime out of it. 
We were able then to speak in health terms, so about harm reduction, about reducing the risk, about increasing prevention. Now those are not crime and criminal, you know, criminology or criminological responses. And so we could use that new lexicon of language to explain to people in words that they understood. And, and um, we, we got to the stage where we were trying, in, in a Scots way, to pick a fight. We were trying to, you know, get these things discussed, get them out in the open, get them on the table and discuss them. And it was before an election and I was being interviewed by uh, David Leask, who was the chief reporter, or is, or just retired, the chief reporter of the Glasgow Herald. And um, during the election campaign, parties were saying, well, uh, we'll we'll put another 1,000 police officers on the street, and I don't know, we'll put 1,100 on the street, and that sort of stuff. And, yeah. and um, he said to me, that, that would be a good thing. How would that impact on the violence? I said, well, 1,000 police officers said, of course that would be a good thing. I said, you know what would be a really clever thing? 1,000 extra health visitors. That would be really smart. And he said, right, okay. And we carried on the interview. And he went away and I got a phone call later at night. He said, John, I'm going through my notes. You actually said you'd rather have a thousand extra health visitors than a thousand extra police officers. Is that right? Uh-huh. Are you quite content that I print that like that? I said, absolutely, go for it. And he did. Nobody, nobody challenged me for being wrong. They would say, even the police federation said, look, I know what John means, but we really need to have police officers there. Nobody said he's a maniac. Nobody said he's talking <laughs> that. So people started there and we thought, we've crossed. We, we, you know, if we haven't quite crossed it, we're up to our ankles in the Rubicon. You know, we, 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 we are almost there where people are accepting that policing alone will not fix What year violence. was this? That would be, well, I'm trying, we'll need to work out the elections. But you were already having some success at that oh, point. Oh, yes. 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 Oh, yeah. Well, we're three or four years into yes. it. Yes. We're three or four years into it, and it was already coming out. Of course, that made me a hero with health visitors, for goodness sake. You know, they, they thought, oh, there's a guy. But it, it's true. Uh, uh, you know, I mean, if we, if we understand that, where we are, I mean, we're now speaking about adverse childhood experiences. In 2008, we ran a conference with the World Health Organization at Tully Allen, and we brought over Vincent Felitti who's the guy who did the first ACE research. We were speaking about ACEs, you know, 12 mm. years ago. And now people are starting to catch on. When uh, Sir Harry Burns became chief medical officer, we wrote the f- a chapter for his first annual report on violence prevention. That was the first time anywhere anybody had, had done that because we'd already established relationships with Harry and he understood exactly what we were saying, could see that connection. How did the, you know, so you identified these adverse childhood experiences as a key pattern. Yes. Once you identified it, what, what do you actually do with that? Because you can't make parents be better parents. No. So, and you can't stop people who probably aren't in the right position to be having children having children yes. at times. So how did you use the data and, and what, what did you build around that? Well, we used the data to, to try and explain better. And first of all, to create a debate and a discussion mm-hmm. and try to explain better why people behave the way people behave. Why, for instance, some politicians who go to private school behave the way they behave. Because yeah. they've, they've suffered some adverse childhood experiences when they've been separated from parents who obviously, you know, from their perspective as a child. So we, we started then to listen to um, we, we, one guy who started... A, a great friend, James Doherty. James is a recovering uh, addict, uh, uh, had served time in prison. And, and James says, w- when kids are acting out in school, they're not seeking attention, they're seeking connection. 
all behaviour is communication. So once we start to speak to professionals to understand better why that's happening, so rather than say, why are you behaving like that? The question somebody should be asking themselves is, what happened to you that's making you behave like that? And that's an entirely different question. Mm -hmm. So we're shifting away from that narrow, narrow, dogmatic ideology that says every person's totally responsible for their actions and moving into saying, yeah, well, that's true, but let's tease that out a bit. We're also the victim of our circumstances, you know, about what happened to us. I mean, right now what's in the press, you have a royal prince who was absolutely devastated by the loss of his mother, who was walking down amongst thousands of people who were weeping and he wasn't allowed to weep. And we're surprised that this guy's protecting his family the way he is when now he's got a child. We're surprised at that. I'd be surprised if he didn't. I think everyone needs to stop having an opinion on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, just yeah let, you're probably right. Yeah, you're probably right. Yeah, yeah. Let, let him do what he wants to do. Yes. I mean, I'm with you. I'm just, yeah. uh, you know, he, he, you know, his mother was harassed by the press, yeah. uh, most likely contributed towards her death yeah. in one way or another. And yeah, I mean, he's always seemed like a good guy. He wants to look yeah. after his family, leave him alone. Yeah. So it's, that, it, it's yeah. about that, trying to understand these things. And it, the more we understand, yeah. the more we can do. So when, when we, when we, when we value children, we have to value parents. Uh -huh. And we haven't done that. We, you know, if we valued that, we would be paying mums to stay at home and look after them. Or dads and mums and dads. Same as Sweden where they share it around. Or sending them to school at seven uh, rather than five. Let uh, them play. Let them play. Yes, and... absolutely. Fall out trees. Yeah, yeah. Because that's what they're meant to be doing. Taking risks. They're yeah. meant to be taking risks and learning. And when we look at the Nordic Ark that we say, well, this is fabulous. And, you know, that uh, Finland and Sweden and Norway and who do wonderfully well in all the educational outcomes... They don't, I mean, Finland don't send their kids to school until they're seven. They don't get, they don't set an examination until they're about 15 or 16. They're one of the most well-educated nations in the world. Well, our politicians want league tables to measure yep. kids on so yep. they can say we've done a better job. Yeah. Um, my son's just done his mocks. My daughter does exams. It stresses her out. Uh, and they're memorising facts when they've got a phone. It's just it's, ridiculous. It's, the, it's, that, it's that value frame. Yeah. It's the scene. What is, what is it we value? I think it was... Was it Schopenhauer who said that talent hits the target no one else can hit, but genius hits the target no one else can see? And, and it's that idea of saying, look, what do we value here, really? What, do we, what are we looking for? So the notion of well-being, that, that allows us, adverse childhood, uh -huh. allows us to speak about well-being, allows us to speak about resilience, allows us to speak... Because there's a danger in speaking about adverse childhood experiences that we think they're a predictor of outcome, and they're not. They're an indicator of risk. Uh -huh. I mean, if, if, if I'm speaking to an audience, that's not matter who they are, I'll say, look, just take a second and think about how many adverse childhood experiences you've had in your life. And I'd be surprised if you all haven't had at least one or two. Now, I know people who've had nine or ten and are absolutely fabulous human beings because they had somebody there when they were young to help them buffer it and look after them. I know others who've had one and they're absolutely destroyed. So is it also then a long-term strategy about kind of a change in construction of society so we have less problems. Yeah. So, for example, if alcohol is a, you know, mm -hmm. it's a contributing problem mm -hmm. to adverse childhood experiences, I know you campaigned for mm -hmm. the minimum price. Yes. And actually, tell me about your... Um, your views on the is it the the I'll have to find it out find where I wrote about it. But the essentially there are people campaigning against you against minimum prices. The yes. Scottish, is it the Scottish, Scottish Whiskey Association? Yeah. Yes, yes. And 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 the you the, were scathing about that. Oh yeah, but I mean, but 
what the minimum unit pricing was saying was sell less product and make more money because it wasn't tax. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't tax yeah. that was gone. We're saying you make so sell less of what you make, but sell it for more. All right, okay, that, that seems a pretty good. That's all right. Scottish Whiskey Trade Association, it doesn't affect them. Doesn't affect whiskey. Most of the whiskies they're selling start at 25, 30 quid. So why it, do they care? They cared because they've got emerging markets in South America, in Africa, in China, where if public health is used as a reason for not doing it, they will be affected in their public markets. Right. Nation- so it's an international argument they're making. They're making a global argument, not for Scotland. Because what Scotland has done is set the precedent that says there is a link between alcohol and our health. And we, as a government, can do something about it using public health measures, which is minimum unit pricing. Now, once that precedent's set, they can do that in Nicaragua. They can do that in Bolivia. They can do that in Peru. They can do it in right. South Africa. So it was the message they didn't want out there. They didn't want a message out there. Was this a, is this entirely, and has it been entirely, a, a male problem or... You know, what was the gender split? Well, I, I always, I always v- violence, violence is a man thing. Yeah. And I think if we don't fix violence against women, which is a huge issue, we'll never fix violence. The reason I ask is because only twice in my research, and I must have watched 20 documentaries, debates, has the, uh, twice the term masculinity has come up. It came up with you and it mm-hmm. came up in the debate in London that I watched mm-hmm. that people seem to avoiding the fact that there's a lot of just male bravado and ego. Um, you know, the documentary I watched about, there was lads talking about crossing the wrong side of the road into the wrong area. They could get chased, stabbed, mm-hmm. attacked. That to me is just some weird male mm-hmm. bravado, masculinity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, lads being quite proud they'd been stabbed. Again, seems yeah. to come down to that. And we seem to be of trying to avoid having the issue of our masculinity and it can be a bit of a problem. Yeah, I think it can. And... and um I don't think today young men have a notion about what it is to be a man. I mean, in, in, in modern society, there's no initiation. There's no process. There's no moment. There are some, and some religious, that, that at a particular age something happens to you. If it's, you could be Bavitsa, it could be... But there is mm. nothing that, that says you now have become a man. And, there's, and, and, and humans, it doesn't matter who we are, uh, uh, back to the human thing, when we get to our adolescence... That's when we do take risks. I mean, we're, we are risk takers. That's how we're out the cave. You know, that's how we climbed Everest and went to the... I mean, that's how we did all these things. That's still there. That's a human thing. That's what keeps us rolling forward. And it's fine if the risk that you're taking, you can judge. But for some of these young guys, they can't. And it's very difficult. And the masculinity thing is about understanding the responsibility of what it is to be a man. Now, it's a difficult subject to have. If you look at the... If you look at what's happened in relation to, in terms of, you know, gender over the years. Now, there's still too much gender inequality in terms of, I mean, we talk about the glass ceiling and how much women are earning at the BBC. That's not, that's only one measure of bloody women's equality. When when women don't get battered by their husbands on a Friday night, and, and, and or if it does happen, somebody next door thinks it's wrong and does something about it, then... That's equality when we stop that nonsense. When we don't think, when I take my daughter to the nursery, they don't say, oh, you're babysitting. They don't think of me as a father. They think of me as, well, if, if dad's looking after her, there must be something wrong with mum. Yeah. So we all have to change our attitudes about that. And once we do that, we'll start to think a bit more about what masculinity is. But right now, young men don't know. If you look at, the, I think something like when we did some work, it would be 2000 and 
oh, nine or ten. Something, I think it's 29%. Now, the figures won't, won't be exactly right, but it was, let's say it was 29% of households in the UK were single-parent households. And of those, overwhelming majority of single parents were mums. So it was absent fathers. When we looked in our poorest areas where all our stuff was, single-parent households, they accounted for something like 65 70%. Wow. Huge. And yeah. absent fathers. Now, now, some fathers are better absent because they're toxic. Of course. But the truth of the matter is that there's a reason why they should they should be there. And and it's always interesting for me that notion of absent fathers. But that's a global problem. Oh yes, that absolutely. Every everywhere I've been, whether absolutely. it's here, London, El Salvador, America. Absolutely. The lack of the father is a problem because masculinity itself isn't a problem, it's how it's defined. You know, how I guide my son. It's not to have fights. Yes. It's not to beat people up. Yeah. It, you know, it's to be a gentleman, a proud yes. young man, mm-hmm. to work hard. Yeah. But, but without any guidance, it yeah. might be, you know, oh, well, it's got to be tough. I've got to fight. Yeah, yeah. And what did my dad do? Well, he, went, he left as soon as, I was, as soon as I arrived. He's away. I've never seen him. He comes back every four or five years, and I know how my mum struggles. Yeah, or I saw my dad abuse my mother, and yes. that's how I treat women. Yes, and, and it's that if you bring a child up in a war zone, you create a warrior. Mm-hmm. And and you know when when we when I use the expression first of all uh, people would talk about PTSD, so if it, you know we we, we recognise that as being absolutely a horrible thing, uh, uh, and and many you know men and women returning from theatres of conflict suffering from PTSD the impact it has on their life is absolutely horrific on relationships on everyday life for them is dreadful, and yet we don't seem to realise that if if you're a child who's bought up in a house where every every other night you know your dad is batters your mum or is just a constantly aggressive and constantly coercive and undermining and negative about her we don't think that has an effect on a child of course it does of course it does what's the what's the escape though like you know if somebody recognizes and, and that they're in a difficult situation and there's violence and there's gangs and they want an escape but they feel like there's no hope or opportunity yeah. where can they go i mean i know there was a relocation program which is super interesting because mm-hmm. I imagine even, especially even in London, where you've got these tough gangs. Yeah. I reckon there's a lot of people in there who are scared. They yeah. don't want to be in there. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right about the scared. I mean, I used to say, I said, you think, when young guys are 15 and 16, they want to be out chasing young women who are 15 uh-huh. and 16. That's what, they, that's what they want to be doing. That's what, they're, that's what they've been driven to do. Um, I said, so every time they step out the front door, they don't know if they're going to be chased. They don't, they don't know if they're going to get stabbed. So they take a knife and they do it. Do you think, that, you think they enjoy doing that? And I think the other thing too is the perspective of the numbers. It's a single issue thing. And so we start to think that's an issue. The overwhelming majority of young men in London, Nottingham, Birmingham, Glasgow are absolutely fine. They're not carrying knives. They're yeah. not in gangs. They're not threatened by gangs. They're absolutely fine. Great young men and women going out about doing their business. But we focus in on, and I don't know what the percentage will be, but I'll bet you it's not in double figures. Of course. Because that's the thing that's sort of, oh, we need, to, we need to sort this out because it's there. It's the nature of things. That's a threat. We see that as a threat, so that's the one we, we heighten in on. So the, the, and health speak about primary, secondary and tertiary. The primary is that notion of let's help their parents, let's help it. So one of the things that we did, for instance, in Pullman Prison, um, which is our young offenders, 70% of the young men who were there were there for non-sexual violent crime. Great young guys. Absolutely great young guys. But violent. Violent. <laughs> you know, just, that's the way they were. Most of them were dads. And if you said to them, what do you want for your kids? Oh, I don't want this. <laughs> so that's a teachable moment. That's a reachable moment. 
So we said, well, when they're in prison, what are we doing about parenting? What are we doing about showing them what it is to be a dad? The responsibilities of a father. And we were doing nothing. So we need to start thinking about that. We need to start thinking of these things. Because we don't, we define people by the service we deliver them. So, you know, a prison service sees them as prisoners. Well, he's also a dad and a brother and a son and an uncle and a friend. There's a whole range of other things that he is. Why are we not dealing with that when we've got them there? So we need to start doing that, which is difficult, but we need to start doing it. In terms of that secondary thing, there's there's some good programmes we've introduced in Scotland uh, uh, in the secondary schools. One's called um, MVP, Mentors and Violence Prevention. It's yeah, I've read about that. And that's about how we how we challenge things that are that are... That, that we know are unhealthy. You know, the point that you made where young guys don't want to do that, but everybody else is doing it. Um, and often, as humans, we conform to expectation. So if you're the young guy who lives in the street, everybody does that. I mean, if you're a young guy who lives in Bears Den, which is a really nice area of, of Glasgow, and well, it's not actually Glasgow, it's in north of Glasgow, um, you'll join the rugby club because all your pals are in the rugby. You know, you'll, you'll, you know, you'll do different stuff. If you're in the east end of Glasgow, in Barrafield, well, what do you do there? Well, you play football or you join a gang or you do both because that's what's there. You conform to the expectation that's there. That's what your dad did. That's what your Uncle Billy did. You know, that's what your mommy's brother did. You know, and, and, and so we need to break that cycle and say, look, this, we need to give alternatives. And it's about that. There's not a single solution or a lever to pull, but there are certain things we know will make it better. It'll make it better if we exclude fewer people from school and we give them the education they need, no matter how difficult that is for some of these kids. You need to do that. Because, you, you, and, and we get them a job and we get them some hope, which is a huge thing, then they're less likely to be that. Some do be a job. Nobody be a job ever joined a gang. Do you know? Nobody be hope and aspiration ever joined a gang. Well, that might be one thing that's different from in London. So one of the things in London, like the guy I was talking about is that, you know, it's difficult to get a job, and if it's job, it's low paid. You join a gang, you can start selling drugs, mm-hmm. go to a trap house. You know, you can be earning hundred, two hundred pound a day. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm not sure what age I reached when I you know, was able to yes, earn that kind of money, but that's, <laughs> yes. that's a significant yes, salary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it felt like me in Scotland, a lot of the gangs were more kind of territorial mm-hmm. and less criminally based. Is that true or have I oh, yeah, got yeah. that wrong? No, they, they were. The majority were territorial recreational violence. That's what they did. But that's it, better though because in some ways, therefore, you've got more of an op- you, you can create an opportunity which is more aspirational than trying to get someone who's earning £200 yeah, pound a day yeah, selling absolutely. drugs. But we, but we, also, we also still have the highest drugs deaths in, in Europe. We yes. still have a huge drug problem. We still yeah. have lots of organised criminal groups and they recruited from these young men. They recruited these violent young men who would, right. who would just do what they had to do. So it was still there, no, as they stink, but, or as they stink. But you're right, there are nuances around it, but it needs to be about hope. It needs to be about connection. People need to feel connected to what they're doing. They need some aspiration about where they're going. And, and as a society, we can respond to that by the services that are there and provided, the culture that's there. And, and you know, when you're asking about, you know, how do we take these things forward? This is about changing the way we think about things. We always said, look, this is not an initiative. We're changing the way we do our business forever. This is not an initiative. This is not, let's do it for three weeks and then or three years and then we'll do something else. That's not what it's about. We're changing the way we think about things. And when we did the gangs project in the East End of Glasgow, um, which was hugely successful, we brought from the States, one of the reasons it was successful was Glasgow education reduced exclusions by 80%. They increased nurturing schools. 
John Butcher was head of secondary schools. Maureen McKenna is now the, the director of, or, or was at the time as well, director of education. They wanted nurture in the schools. They kept these young guys. They dealt with them. They didn't throw them out. They kept them. That was one of the reasons, you know. We, we had other stuff. And when you were t- you know, talking earlier on about speaking to them, I remember the very first time we, we had a call in, which was bringing the guys in and the gangs and saying uh-huh. we've had enough. We brought along a, um, a fella called Jack Black <laughs> from Mind Store, right? Now, Jack Black was a social worker in Easterhouse. Yep. So he came along and uh, all the detectives in Strathclyde had met him because he gave us the, the course. We were honest. And so I'd met him before and we contacted him. This is what we're doing. We'd like you to come along and speak to him. No problem. He came along, gave him his time for nothing. And he was outstanding. And what he did, he took 85 of these young guys away for two days. We went to Celtic Park and we had a a mind store conference for them, the same as you and I would pay two and a half grand for or whatever it was. <laughs> and um, I remember the first day, all these guys are sitting there, and they're all different gangs, and you know they were all they, they, they were they were all. Anyway, Jack Black was doing his thing, and he said, "What do you want to get out of today? What do you want to get out of being here? What is it you want to be? What do you? What is it?" And they were silent. These guys weren't used to these things. These weren't young professionals ready for them. Uh-huh. And one guy at the back put his hand up. And Jack says, right, on you go. And the boy stood up. And he had a scar on the side of his face, which meant he was a victim. But he pointed to another table. He said, see they guys over there? I've been fighting them since I was 11. I want to know why. <laughs> and I thought... I bet they didn't know why. Bang, there you go. That's exactly it. I mean, why are you fighting each other? Why are you doing that? Because they've always done it. Could anyone actually answer it with a no, rational... No, there was no reason. There was no reason because, you know, your, your great-grannies, you know, punched my great-grandmother. You know, yeah. it's... Nobody had... It's because they came from there and we come from here. God, that's and it, it was just... So when you speak to folk and listen to them and say, right, you tell me what it is. Sometimes... I mean, we would say to them, you're in the Cal Toy. No, no. I'm not in a gang. Oh, but you're running about with these five now. Ah, oh, but that's because we come from the same place. They didn't even recognise themselves sometimes as being in gangs. I mean, there were others who definitely identified being in a gang and had gang tags and would get into other, knew exactly what they are doing, organised their, their uh, fights and, you know, with a phone will get you at the usual place and such and such. And they did all that stuff. But they had no notion why they were doing it. It was about risk. It was about masculinity. It was about conforming. And I'm sure when you had five of them, they're ready to go gang fighting. I bet you at least four of them are thinking, shh, I don't want to go. I'm terrified. I don't want to go here. But yeah. didn't want to say, do you know? Didn't want to God. speak out. I mean, I've been at meets where somebody said something outrageous and others don't say anything, you know? It's, yeah. it's the same thing. It's, we just conform to it, the easiest road to go, you know? So, yeah, I've, I obviously have a passionate interest about back near home, like London, barely day, a day goes by, John, where there isn't a news article with someone being killed. And we had three the other day, three yeah, sequels. Yeah. But it's just relentless. And at almost to the point, it's like, oh, okay, another one. Yeah. It's like, which is really sad. And I struggle to understand, where is the will to change this? I, I see ex-gang members talk, and I see a mayoral candidate speak, and I see people speak, but there doesn't seem to be a will, a direct will to fix this, like some momentum. And I look at what you've done up here, and, I, and, and you might be too modest to answer this how I, I, I want you to, but... What if you hadn't come along, or let's just say the 
the people that were all involved hadn't come at the same time. Could this completely have not happened? Could this, you know, is this down to coincidence of people? At the right oh, time? I think I think there's serendipity. I don't think there's yeah. any doubt about that. There's there's a real serendipity. But the the, the the guy who knocked the first domino over was Willie Ree. Yeah, he was the guy who had the view, and funnily enough, he's. But the was guy... he under pressure? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. But he he, he um. I mean, there was a headline in one of the papers said, "Get out of your bunker, Willie. What's happening in Glasgow?" I mean, that was. I mean, that was a sort of pressure. Okay. But, but he never responded to media stuff like that. That wasn't his. That wasn't how he dealt with things. He was. He was the back office guy. Okay. He was the guy that made sure everything was there. Our previous chief constable was Sir John Orr, big flash guy. He was the guy who was the investigator for like, Lockerbie, big flash right. guy. Okay. But when Wally Ray took over, two thousand and three, we didn't have emails. We had no personal emails. So all of that, you know, so Willie Ray was a far more thoughtful, inclusive, connected guy. He was a guy that understood the notion of collaboration and what the role of policing was in these things. And and not that masculine. I mean, police and fire, they're plant. Yes, we're the man, we'll fix it out. Yeah. No, we won't. We just won't. And, and I think, first of all, in London, the difference is there's political with a capital P. There's an issue. Home Secretary runs the mate. That's wrong. Actually, but anyway, that, that's what that's what's there. You have the mayor, you have the home. I don't know how that works. Uh, uh, whether they were, were from the same party or not, it makes. I don't know how it works. It's huge. Everybody wants to fix everything. Politicians want to fix everything. They want to do it today. They want to do something that's new that no one else has thought of. That's there, and that's that's a masculine thing as well. I think, although you know, some some women leaders are taking that on as well. Somebody needs to sit down and take a breath. I'll bet you there's some fabulous youth work going on in London. Outstanding youth work. Heroic youth work. There is. Every day, people mm-hmm. doing it. Imagine if they weren't there, what the scale would be. And that's the thing to look at. Because we keep saying, ah, oh, but it, it can't be working because we're still having this. Well, okay, let's be a wee bit negative for a minute. Imagine that wasn't there. That that you've got would be worse. So what we need to do is, I think, find out where it's working and where it's working well and do more of it. Get out their way. Give them what they need to do what they need to do. In relation to policing, community cops, back in the street tomorrow and leave them where they are for five years to establish relationships, to understand their communities and stop parachuting in with armoured vehicles and searching the first group of 25 people they bump into. You need to start doing that. I mean, my assumption is that as two police officers walking the beat in high-vis jackets is a deterrent on that estate or or the roads surrounding that. Mm-hmm. And I cannot understand, apart from a lack of funding or some bureaucracy, why that isn't yeah. happening. You know, we are talking about the lives of children here. Yeah. You know, innocent children. You know, most deaths seem to be under, certainly under 20, but under 18. And it, it, it you know, boggles my mind, John. Well, I, I, to be clear, I, I don't necessarily mean just the idea of a beat man because... I mean, I walked a beat for a long time and never came across a crime. I mean, I would have. I, I would expect yeah, maybe I prevented some. But because it is a deterrent. But, but community officers. Community officers working in the same area establish relationships. They right. meet the shopkeepers. They meet the kids. One of the things that we started in Scotland, and it, it was happening in, in Aberdeen, and we found it and brought it down and, and introduced it throughout Scotland. Campus police officers. Okay. Cops who are in schools, that's their job. That's where they start in the morning. That's where they finish at night. They work in the high school. They work with the head teacher. They're not there 
for security and to enforce the rules, although that will be part of it, but they don't enforce the school rules. That's still a job for the teacher. Most young people, the only time they bump into a cop is when the cop's getting them to do something. So they're already in a conflict situation, these young guys. They've never met a cop other than he's wanted to search them or ask them where they're going or treated them as if they were up to no good. These cops and these schools are the positive role model. These are the places where these... A good community cop will bump into maybe 30 or 40 uh, uh, young people in a day. Campus police officer bumps into hundreds of children every day. They're campus officers plus. That's the... They're the Jesuits of the campus cop uh, uh, regime. They're the guys and women who go in there. They work with head teachers. They share information. They know folk. They make people feel safe. They link in with the primary schools and the nursery schools. So when the kids walk through that playground, there's a face they know. They organise things for them. They know what happens. They can solve crimes that happen on a Saturday and Sunday by lunchtime on a Monday. They make sure they got on the buses right. They make sure there's no litter outside. They make sure nobody's exploiting the kids who are there. Uh -huh. That's the stuff. But it's no flashbang. It's something that's quiet and that's there. When we introduced it and saw it, one of the schools we put them in, put into in the east end of Glasgow... The head teacher was against it, but, but did it because Maureen McKenna wanted it to happen, so we did it. And we put in the very best guy we've ever had, Jeff, and he was outstanding. You know, he started kids going on the Duke of Edinburgh Award stuff. He started, you know, getting them bikes. He would, a whole range of things. After three years, we had four kids apply to join the police from that school. Out of 14,000 employees in Strathclyde Police, we had nobody from that school until he was in there. Now, that wasn't why we were doing it. It's not about recruiting. But it inspires. But it changes yeah. the way kids think about it. And if you speak to them now, I mean, it was silly little things. They would do joint visits. So John didn't turn up on Monday morning to sit his exam. And the cop would, would be only check. oh, John's dad assaulted his mum last night. He was in the hospital until two in the morning. That's why he's no one. Right, okay. So they'd quietly go and see him, yeah. say, okay, kid, there's what you need to do. Bring him back in. On parents' nights, the cop would have a room and he'd be sitting there, do you want to come and speak to me? Come and speak to me. Huge difference it makes, huge difference. But it's not, you know, I mean, I keep saying, you know, the one thing I know for certain, you know, that, that somebody would say that life's a sexually transmitted disease with a 100% fatality rate, but we're, we're all humans. Yeah. And at the end of the day, no matter the question, the answer is relationships. That's it. That's it. And so uh, how it happened with Willie Ray and us and Karen and I and how we went out and met folk, Willie Ray empowered us and we paid it forward. We empowered other people. We let them get on with it. Go and do it. What do you think we should be doing? And we did it. Is there anything you got wrong during the times? Anything that you thought would work and totally different? Anything you look back? We had some... We used to have uh, 10 in the violence reduction, 12. That was it. Never was any more than 12. And we used to have weekly meetings and we had a standing agenda item called half-baked ideas. And we used to have outrageous ideas, you know, about cannabis and providing cannabis to calm people down and oh, anyway, all sorts of stuff. We thought about, we had some ideas that weren't of their time. One of Karen's uh, uh, great ideas was alcohol bracelets, which measured your, how much alcohol you took. So a, a sheriff could sentence someone to sobriety. If he knew alcohol was it, will sentence you to sobriety. So you go and do that. If that wasn't of its time, it didn't go. People went, oh, no, we can't do that. That was seven or eight years ago. They're now introducing them. Well, i tell you what I found most interesting, and, and this will probably be a good point to, you know, we've, we've done very well, but to close out, because 
you know, I mentioned to you my background before we started, yeah. and you talked about the safe injecting rooms uh-huh. in Glasgow, something that Theresa May completely rejected, yeah, and yeah. I'm not surprised because we we have a lot of... We, I think we're a generation away from people really being a lot more comfortable with drugs mm-hmm. in that, you know, my generation, most people have done one thing or another at some mm-hmm. point. But I've, I've witnessed it in Vancouver, and I'm also... <laughs> I don't personally think drug prohibition works, but I don't know the balance. I've spent a lot of time in the States now. Marijuana is legal or decriminalized in most states, and society hasn't collapsed. Mm-hmm. People are going, I mean, I've visited one of the stores in Boulder. It's very professional, and the customers are buying, they're going home, they're watching TV. Mm-hmm. How far you take that is, I guess, depends on who you are, you know, and what your views are. But I feel like we need a more radical approach to drugs. And mm-hmm how we deal with drugs. And this seemed like an interesting policy. Yeah. Well, I remember the Scottish Crime and Drugs Enforcement Agency had 360 officers, two of whom were involved in prevention. The rest were interdiction. We're an island. I used to work in a drug squad. (laughs) And I worked in a Scottish Crime Squad. We're an island. Drugs are as cheap now as they were 25 years ago. And so, yeah, we need to stop it. We need to just say, this is not working. Now, I don't know the solution to it. I've got, you know, the idea of the drug treatment, and that seems to me a good public health intervention to that. That seems to me a sensible thing to do. And, and, and it's where we are. And perhaps, again, Scotland, like the violence thing, will be at that crossroads before anybody else because we've got the highest levels of drug-related deaths in, in Europe. Mm-hmm. So... This is a you know it's, it, you know this is a crisis and and we shouldn't be wasting a good crisis. We should be thinking about what we're going to do with this, um, and maybe that's the time to actually have a real discussion about it, a public discussion about it to change the way we think about things. I mean, I've always naively because I'm a proud Scot. I mean, Scott Scots gave the world the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment's about that notion of understanding our world and understanding what's around us and what's best for each other. We have this reputation for being egalitarian, that we we, we help. If, if I'm your friend, I'll be your friend forever. We make fabulous allies. I mean, I already told you earlier on, we make very dangerous enemies, but we make wonderful allies. We will never desert you. We'll always be there. So I think in Scotland, maybe that's the opportunity to, to have that that really difficult discussion, and I'm not saying it's easy, even with the decriminalisation. What worries me about the legalisation stuff is if we if we legalise it, who, who's going to sell it for us? Amazon? Where are we going to do it? Because the big companies that do it, you know, big companies are a big issue. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, that, 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 that notion, that globalisation of these things, that worries me. Who's going to do it? The principle of it. I think we need to be relaxed about it and think about it. Yeah, I, I, I have that similar view that sex workers, I have a, yeah, yeah. I have a probably more a libertarian view that certainly that I think the debate of all, all drugs are evil, if you do them you should be arrested and yeah. we should we should look, the kind of like the way we look down on people who take drugs, I just don't think it's effective. See, Prohibition you, hasn't worked. If you, if you circle it right back to the idea of violence uh-huh. and we, we learn how not to be violent, if you circle that right back and say, right, okay, what we've what we've challenged over the years is the supply. Mm-hmm. We've challenged the supply. Let's deal with the demand. Let's ask ourselves the question because James, I was speaking as a couple now. James says, John, when I was taking drugs, drugs weren't the problem. Drugs were the answer. Yeah. And so if we make sure that drugs are not the answer because we take away the problem, then perhaps the demand will decrease. Maybe I'm being incredibly naive, but but I do think there's a human part of that that will make a difference to some people. 
I don't think anyone struggles to get drugs if they want it now. Certainly not in the modern era with WhatsApp no, no. and such. No. And I don't think there's any anyone has any fear or or of being arrested. This no. is not a deterrent either. It's not a deterrent. So it's if it's not a deterrent and uh, it's easy to access, well, you know, markets dictate supply and demand. If the, you know, if people want it, why are we punishing them for it? when that ultimately probably makes it worse for society. Yeah. You, you might find that the Scottish Whiskey Trade Association will have a, have a case against it as well. Well, of course they will. <laughs> Do you know? Yeah. So there you go. So we, we get ourselves, uh, you know, we get we get um, criminality involved with, with commercialisation and stuff, and you think, mm, mm, I wonder how that would be. Yeah. <laughs> well, listen, look, I, the way I just want to finish out is, obviously you retired a few years ago. Yeah. I assume you're still keeping an eye on what people are doing. And yes. You, you've got an interest in it. But, you know, how have things been since you've left? Yeah, I think it's not the VRU still there. Uh, um, I, I still think things don't move quick enough, but they never did for me. Uh, we need to move a bit quicker. We still have far too many suicides. We need yeah. to think about that. Our notion of collaboration is is needs to get itself sorted. How we support parents, we need to get fixed. We we've been we've just had a root and branch review of the care system. I've been part of that. That reports back in the fifth. I'm really, really optimistic and hopeful about that. That's going to make a huge difference to a big and make us think again and demonstrate to the to 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 other Scots that we do care about everybody, you know, and, and it's important we fix that. So I ah, there's still good stuff, but you know, I remember somebody saying it, it's um it's not there to be fixed, it's our job to make it better. And it's just our turn. You know, others have yeah. tried and done before, it's just our turn to shift it on a bit. Well, you took your turn. I think you did a great job. The stats don't lie. I commend you for it. Thank you. And I commend everyone who worked with you and behind you. Um, it certainly has saved lives. It certainly made Scotland a better place. And thank you for your time. Um, this you know, my first time in Scotland, so I appreciate you. Uh, I mean, it, you, you were a draw for me to come up here, but I appreciate you making some time. And uh, I hope some people down south hear this and hear yeah. about some of the work and they're inspired to to look at the case study and yeah. maybe that'll inspire something yeah. down the line. And, and I think when you speak, I know you're going to speak to Rudy Crawford, when yeah. you speak to Rudy, you'll realise how easy it was to establish relationships and get things. Well, so the reason I want to speak to Rudy is I want to be scared. I want to be even more <laughs> scared about what the potential dangers are. So um, that's one I'll be playing to my son mm -hmm. who wants to listen to songs mm -hmm. about people talking about scoring systems for stabbing each other. I want him to uh, hear about what the impact is oh, on people's lives. Oh, Rudy will do that. Yeah, because yeah, part... I, I, sorry, I'm, I'm just going back in, but part of one of the strategies I read about was that you actually had a video that you were taking to schools to show people. Yeah. So, you know, you can incentivize people. And I think you can shock people out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. it's all of those things. It's different things work for different, you know, for, for different folks. And I think it's just identifying the, the teachable moment and being nimble enough to do the right thing at the right time. That's where it has to be. And, yeah. and, um, and uh, you know, I mean, our original aspiration was not to make it worse, yeah. <laughs> which is which is hardly huge and ambitious, but it changed very quickly, you know. Um, and now, uh, but you need to start somewhere. Yeah. Well, listen, enjoy your retirement. Sorry to Thank interrupt you. Not it at now all. and uh, not take Good care. to meet you. Thank you. Thanks for that. Thank you for listening to Defiance. I do hope you enjoyed this interview with John. Both this interview and my previous interview with Rudy Crawford have been very interesting to me, both learning about the impact of violent crimes on victims and perpetrators, but also the impact that the violence reduction had was pretty remarkable. Following its success, London has implemented its own violence reduction unit, and that, along with Knife Crime in London and the rest of the UK, is something I'm going to continue looking into. 
Also, if you haven't checked it out and you do want to listen to the other interview, the one with Rudy about his role as a surgeon and the various injuries he was dealing with during his career, then that's episode 25. I do recommend you checking that out because it's another fascinating interview. Before we close out, I do need to thank my sponsor Kraken, the best place to buy Bitcoin, consistently rated the best and most secure cryptocurrency exchange. Kraken puts the power in your hands to buy, sell and trade Bitcoin. You can find out more at kraken.com, which is K-R-A-K-E-N.com. Also, if you want to support the show, please leave me a review on iTunes or subscribe to the show. Follow me on social media or share it out with your friends and family. If you have any questions about this show or any other show I've made, please feel free to email me on peter at defiance.news.